Let's bow our head in prayer. Lord, we thank and praise you for your abundant grace. Please grant us wisdom and understanding this morning as we read and hear your word. Amen. I'm reading today from Revelations 2, verse 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Thank you. Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. I have a uh, Christian friend who started a new job. Uh, We'll call him Ben. Uh, It was a bit of a dream job for Ben. It was the kind of place uh, that Ben was really excited about working. Uh, But as soon as he started, he realised in that first week, uh, this was a workplace with a really big drinking culture. Uh, And Ben knew that for him, alcohol was a bit of a trap. Uh, He knew if he started drinking, he was going to get himself uh, into trouble. And so each week... Uh, as he turned down Friday drinks or as he came along and just drank Coke, uh, the pressure was growing and building. And he got the sense that actually any future prospects he had in this workplace were going to be seriously affected by his decision not to join in the booze up. Another friend, Chris, and I had grown up at church together. Uh, He was one of my groomsmen. Uh, And now it was his turn to get married, and it was his bucks party. And uh, unbeknownst uh, to us, uh, one of his unbelieving mates had organised a little surprise. Uh, You can imagine what that looked like. Uh, Just after the party started, some topless waitresses showed up. And his mate had put down the cash, the girls were there. You can imagine the pressure on Chris and all the Christians at the party just to go along and do nothing. I know Christian heavy vehicle drivers who are pressured by their bosses to lie in their logbooks and drive longer hours than legally they're allowed to. I know Christian accountants who are expected to fudge the books. Christian salespeople who are pushed to be less than honest in their sales pitches in order to secure more sales. I know many Christians who've sat for a long time under sound biblical teaching 
and yet been persuaded by the culture that we live in that their self-fulfilment, their comfort, their sport, their family time are all more important than being committed to gathering regularly with God's people. I know several Christian families who believed that the Bible's teaching on sexuality was right and true until their son or their daughter or their niece came out. I know church pastors, church leaders who change their theological positions and the way that they do their ministries, not because they'd read something in the Bible that convinced them to change their position, but just because they saw other people doing something and thought, well, it seems to work for them, why don't we give it a go? I know teens at this church who are facing incredible pressure from peers and teachers not just to love people with different ideas and ideologies, but to embrace and celebrate and champion lifestyles that we know are contrary to the way God wants us to live. See, as Christians, we are under a whole lot of pressure, aren't we, every day to compromise our faith. We're under a whole lot of pressure to renounce Jesus, to abandon him, maybe in subtle ways, maybe in really obvious ways. See, more and more we're finding that the accepted norms of Australian culture and society are just incompatible with our Christian faith. More and more the expectations that our society is placing on us clash with remaining true to Jesus. And we feel it, don't we? More and more. The enticement, the persuasion, the pressure to compromise our faith and join in the idolatry of the world around us. The cost for following Jesus is increasing. Well, this letter uh, was written to a church under enormous pressure to compromise. Uh, And it's a letter that we desperately need to hear Because the warnings and the encouragements that Jesus had for this church in the first century, he has for us here today in the hills of Adelaide. Have a look at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet... You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even when one of you was killed because he stood up for Jesus. See, Jesus describes Pergamum as a city where Satan has his throne and lives. Now, it's not a literal throne, it's not a literal home, as if, you know, in all of the world, Satan chose one place to... Uh, set down his roots. No, it's, it's, it's a city where Satan holds enormous power and influence. A city where we see both the authorities and also the general public, the society, are both so uh, in the grip of Satan, so influenced by Satan, that they actually wield the sword against anyone who refuses to join in. 
They wield the sword against anyone who refuses to join them in worshipping the idols that they worship. See, the Roman Empire of, that ruled over Pergamum, uh, who had set up uh, their capital city, their sort of headquarters in all of Turkey, they'd set it up there in Pergamum, they literally wielded the sword for anyone who refused to bow down and worship the emperor as a god. But it wasn't just the authorities. All of society wielded a different kind of sword against anyone who didn't join in worshipping their gods and goddesses. See, the Pergamene Christians, if they didn't worship some of the many gods and goddesses that the other people of Pergamum worshipped, they faced losing their jobs, their marriages, their families, their reputation, their freedom, and like Antipas, even their lives. See, there would be more martyrs to come after Antipas, more Christians who would be killed because they didn't deny Jesus, because they refused to join in the worship of these idols, to join in the sin of those around them. This church is a church that lived in the place where Satan lived and ruled, where they faced being crushed and cancelled and killed. But see what Jesus says. In all of this pressure, they remained true to Jesus. They didn't compromise. I want to ask for a second, what, who are your heroes? Who got, who's got heroes? I'm not talking Thor or Captain Marvel or, you know, some basketballer or footy player. I'm talking real heroes. I'm talking Christians. I'm talking those people who have stood for Jesus in Satan's stronghold and haven't renounced their faith. They haven't compromised. They haven't given up, even under incredible pressure. The missionaries, the martyrs, the, the faithful everyday believers who go through thick and thin and keep hanging on to Jesus no matter what. Who are your heroes? Maybe you don't have any. You need to find some. Lots of places you can go. I'd encourage you today, go home, jump on the web, go to Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors, Maybe find or borrow or buy, you know, a few missionary biographies. But you know there are actually heroes here among us. See, we have brothers and sisters here in this room who've faced incredible hardship, incredible pressure to compromise, but have still remained true. We have people here in this church who have found Jesus and then had to break out and escape from the cult or the sect that they were part of. We have people here who carry the scars of abuse, and they've escaped and they keep hanging on to Jesus. We have people here who even now are in incredibly hostile situations, whether at work or at home or at school, where the antagonistic you know, spouse or colleague or boss or, or fellow students, just keep at them over and over and over again and they keep holding on to Jesus. See, Jesus commends you. You remain true to my name even though you live where Satan has his throne. You have not renounced your faith in me. 
See, the dream run, I think, that we've had as a society in Australia, as Christians in Australia, is at an end. We live in a society now where Satan is gaining more and more influence and more and more power. And more and more, it's being demanded of us that we join in worshipping the idols of our culture. It's becoming harder and harder to just keep following Jesus without anyone paying us any attention and without uh, getting singled out. See, the idols of self and self-expression and self-determination and self-fulfilment, more and more the swords of our culture are being sharpened against Christians who refuse to bow down to their ideology. More and more, we live in a place that's becoming like Pergamum, don't we? See, if we continue to fly Jesus' flag, we will face the sharpened knives of public outrage. We will be cancelled by our culture. It actually could cost you your job to keep holding on to Jesus in somewhere in the course of the rest of your life. It could cost you your reputation or your friends or maybe even your families or perhaps even a spouse. And that's society, but actually our governments are also becoming more like the Roman Empire. See, I don't know if you know, but a little while ago, uh, Victoria passed uh, a new act called the Change or Suppression Act. Uh, and it's actually being considered right now by the Malinaskis government uh, here in South Australia. And this act actually makes it illegal if someone comes to you and says, actually, I would like to follow Jesus with all my life. I'd like to follow Jesus with my sexuality. I would like to stay celibate. It makes it illegal to encourage, to help, to pray for them to follow Jesus when it comes to sexuality. We live in a world where actually Satan's claws are going deeper and deeper. It's becoming harder and harder. The pressure is getting greater and greater to compromise our faith. What does Jesus say to us in a world like this? Verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. That might be a bit old for some of you in the room, but uh, I think of uh, the great old scene from Croc Dundee. Uh, who knows what I'm talking about? Uh, the outback bushy, he's in New York, uh, and he gets held up by some young hood uh, with a switchblade. And uh, the girl from LA that he's with says, oh, look, you, you better hand over your, your wallet. He says, why? She says, he's got a knife. And, of course, Croc Dundee laughs. He's, that's not a knife. This is a knife. And he pulls out, you know, a ginormous Bowie knife. Hoodlums go running. Off they go. Famous scene the world over. Well, actually, that's the scene that we have right here. To the church that's held at knife point by the powers and the population of the world they live in, Jesus says, that's not a sword. This is a sword. See, Jesus' words are both sobering and soothing. Jesus is going, hey, 
I get that you are worried about what the Romans might do to you. I get that you just saw Antipas, one of your congregation, killed for standing up for me. I get that they literally are wielding the sword against you. But that's not really a sword. I'm the one who holds the power. I'm the one who at the end of the day will judge. That's incredibly soothing, isn't it? But it's also sobering. Jesus is the one who will judge. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 10. He said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But then he goes on to say, But you don't need to be afraid, because you are very, very precious to me. See, we don't need to be afraid of the corrupt authorities. We don't need to be afraid of public consensus and the world and the backlash that we live in because Jesus is the only one who matters. Jesus is the one with the real sword. Well, as you face oppression, as you endure the attacks of those around you, remember that Jesus is the one with the sword. The church at Pergamum had remained true to Jesus, uh, but not all of them. Verse 14. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, some of the church, just like Israel way back in Balaam's day, some of the church had actually started joining in the idolatry of the world that they lived in. Some of the church had been enticed seduced, lured away. Some of the church had been persuaded with the probably very slick and subtle arguments of those around them. And here to us, Jesus says, don't underestimate the seduction. Don't underestimate the power this world has to seduce and entice and persuade us to join them. See, today's seductions and heresies that we face are every bit as enticing and seductive as what this church back then faced in the first century. See, why wouldn't we want to put our own happiness and desires first? That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Why wouldn't we think that be true to yourself is a pretty good way to live? It sounds pretty compelling, doesn't it? pretty seductive. Well, while many of us remain true to Jesus, actually all of us are in danger here of being seduced, being confused and persuaded and led astray. And some of us have already sold Jesus out. Some of us have already been enticed into renouncing Jesus for other idols. 
Some of us have already bought those lies that God wants our happiness. Those lies that God doesn't expect us to be perfect and so he's not all that fussed about what we do. Those lies that we're born this way and we have to be true to our authentic self. Some of us have already bought those lies. Some of us have already bowed down to those idols. I want to just pull out two big idols here. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, here, that there are two things mentioned, food and sexual immorality. And if you were to go back through all of the scriptures and look at all the things that are mentioned whenever idolatry comes up, they're, they're the two big ones that come up again and again and again and again. Food and sexual immorality. And I wonder why that is. I wonder if you've ever thought about why that is. Well, they're both pretty core things for humans. See, I think they're both core bodily desires, one for intimacy and one for inclusion. See, the sex is about connection and intimacy and the food is about inclusion, being part of the community, being part of what's going on being part of rather than excluded from the society that you live in. And I think it's really important we just stop and think about these two idols because they're still the same idols that keep creeping back in today. Firstly, sexual immorality. Incredibly enticing, incredibly powerful. Whether it's a fantasy world of pornography... And I don't just mean the kind of the, the hard stuff that we think of. I think of the stuff that you might call soft, which isn't soft at all. Things like not just, you know, triple X sites, but Netflix, ABC, wherever you go, we're faced with a pornography, with, with things that lure us in to this fantasy world of finding pleasure and trying to find satisfaction out of things that are not good for us. And this is the same for men and for women, young and old. If you're a parent of kids, primary school kids are being introduced to this stuff by their mates. It seems like it's not that big a deal. But this stuff is just poison. I had a, a pastor once describe it to me that it, it looks like a delicious chocolate bar but it's actually just poo dipped in chocolate. It looks good on the outside, but actually when you take a bite, it's absolute filth. It'll rot your insides out. And that's fantasy, but then actually in reality too. See, I think there are those among us who are chasing an actual relationship that isn't good whether it's outside of marriage and you're married, whether it's before married and you're not married, whether it's within marriage, you know, whether our ideas of sex are so shaped by the world that we grow up in that you're pursuing a kind of sexual relationship within marriage that isn't good and healthy, that isn't the kind of sex that is encouraging and building up and loving uh, your spouse. See, we're all tempted here, we're all danger when it comes to sexual immorality. 
But actually, Jesus offers us a far greater intimacy. An intimacy that isn't fleeting, that isn't like that little bit of chocolate on the outside of the poo that just goes away. Jesus offers an intimacy of being completely united to him for all time. And the other is, is the food, which I think actually is, is a bigger thing. You know, in Pergamum, those who didn't eat at the temple were completely out of society. If you didn't join in these feasts that they had, which involved both food and sex, then actually you were completely cut off from your society. From the, you were on the outer And I think today that's probably one of the most powerful tools that Satan wields against us is that sword of exclusion. One of our greatest internal drivers is to fit in, isn't it? It's to be part of of the the group, the the society, what's going on. And that's why cancel culture is such a strong weapon to try and coerce people to fit in and join in the idolatry around us. And this is why we as a church need to work so hard at having relationships that go far beyond just a Sunday morning. That's why we need relationships that aren't just superficial, but where we actually, we might be excluded from the whole rest of society, and yet we are completely included in the fellowship that is our church. I want to say to you, if you're mucking about with either of those, I want to help you. I know what it's like. I am as tempted as you are in all of those ways. If you're struggling, if you have renounced Jesus, if you've bought in to the lies of Satan, I want to encourage you, come and get some help. Come and get some prayer. Have a look at verse 14. Sorry, 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, it's a sobering warning, but listen to this encouragement. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. See, what's happening here? What, what's the stone? What's the manna? What's that all about? Well, to those who are excluded from these feasts, from these festivals, these celebrations, these parties, Jesus is inviting us to the real party. Manna was food that back in the Old Testament, after God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and they were in the wilderness, manna was food that God sent from heaven to sustain his people. And so where in the world around them they're they're being pressured to compromise and pressured to eat the food of idols. Jesus says, I'll give you the food of God. And the white stones, the gladiators used to get given a white stone. Those who were victorious got given a white stone which was like their ticket into the, the party afterwards, the after party. It's not 100%, that's the exact link here. We're not exactly sure, but, but to a world that's completely under Roman rule, 
I think it fits that symbolism of an invitation to God's party. And it's an invitation that gives us a new identity. Our identity is not tied up in this world. Our identity is not tied up with being part of the crowd or the society we live in, but a new identity that's tied up with belonging to Jesus. To us who are tempted by the sacred offerings of our world, Jesus offers the true food from heaven. To us who wear the hateful names that our world throws at us, Jesus offers us new names. To us who seem to be missing out on the party, Jesus invites us to the party to end all parties. To us who are excluded and left out, Jesus gives us a new identity as his chosen people. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus says to us this morning, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Remain true. Repent if you need to. I'll take you to the real party.